So tonight is part four of the King David Summer Series, and it's David, David and Nathan, and it's called Forgiveness and Fallout. And we're going to start at 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich, uh, uh, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan as surely as the Lord lives the man who did this must die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity then Nathan said to David you are the man this is what the Lord the God of Israel says I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms I gave you all Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realised that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and she, uh, he went to her and made love to her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. My teaching tonight is broken kind of into two halves. In the first half, um, I want to look at what Nathan does to bring a godly rebuke to David, and I'm going to identify three steps to a godly rebuke. Uh, a rebuke is like a kind of telling off or a, you know, perhaps at worst is like a harsh telling off. Uh, it can also be something that's very godly and guides somebody back into a right perspective and standing with God, as in this case. Uh, and then I'm going to move on to, okay, how does David react to that and give you some pointers on repentance and how repentance should work and what, it, what it's really all about. And then we're going to explore like how David outworks this uh, at the end. Okay, so the first point I want to say, uh, it, it, when you are thinking about rebuking somebody yourself, if you feel that that's warranted, the first thing to say is be really clear that God is telling you to do it. That's what I would say. Be really clear that God is telling you to do it. 
what we notice in this story uh, is that what David has done has been watched very carefully by God and it has, been, and has prompted God to action, hasn't it? Uh, it shows us that Nathan is a prophet who accurately hears from God. And so you can imagine there's like a, um, there's a circuit going on, if you like. Um, if, like if we do something wrong and then we get hard of heart and blind to sin, God notices that. And because we're starting to get siloed off, off to one side because of our hardness of heart, he needs to tell someone else who can still hear him. He needs to speak to someone like a prophet, uh, someone who's receptive to him. And then that prophet or that person will come to us to tell us what we've done wrong. Um, that, that's kind of the, 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 the pattern that's going on here. And so from the perspective of what we might call priesthood, uh, the picture that is painted in this story of the relationship between the king and the priesthood, or if you like, the monarchy and the priesthood, is fundamentally, it's a healthy one, other than obviously that David has messed up big time. But really, it is, a, is fundamentally healthy because the priest is willing to go and tell the king, okay, you've done the wrong thing here. Now, that's not always been the case in history. If you think about it, there have been many, many instances where uh, that's not worked very well, uh, both in the Bible and in human history since then. If you think of somebody like uh, John the Baptist getting put in prison because he speaks out against what Herod was doing, uh, sleeping with his brother Philip's wife, wife and marrying her, and, and he calls that out, and then Herod does not react in a godly way to that and, and puts John the Baptist in prison, doesn't he? So in the history of human interaction, that relationship between church and state, if you like, or uh, the priests having the capacity to speak to the king or the queen or whoever's in charge, that's not always been worked out in a very rosy way. But in this instance, Nathan does go and say to David what David has done wrong. He kind of goes and confronts him because he's heard from God and he feels convicted enough about it to go and say, no, God's told me that this is wrong. And I, th I suppose you have to kind of think to yourself, so how does Nathan know? Has he, you know, has God just instructed him through prayer? That's quite possible. It might be that, like, on the grapevine in the in the in the in the castle gossip chambers, that there's been stuff being said, because somebody went to fetch Bathsheba, and people don't keep quiet about that kind of stuff. I don't know, but he found out, and he's got it right, and he goes to David and he confronts him. One of the things that I think it would be a great prayer for us to pray, whenever you remember to pray for this, is something like, God, would you raise up leaders who are willing to listen to ministers? And would you raise up ministers who are willing to speak to leaders? So leaders who, who are w willing to listen to the church and take its feedback on board, and ministers in the church, and that's kind of you and I, and, and you know, official ministers and and ministers who, you know, ministers of, of, of church who are part of church who are willing to speak up about what is right, but also that there are leaders in society who can listen to what the church has got to say. And I think if we pray for those things, that those are great things to be praying for. So we need both good leaders and we also need people who can hear from God and who have the capacity to speak and to speak it out. So Nathan fulfills his calling as a prophet. There's only one other time that we see Nathan in action before this in the Bible, and that's when he speaks to David. Um, sorry, when, he, when David seeks uh, God, sorry, about building a temple for God. Uh, and God sort of says to, uh, to David through Nathan that it won't be David himself, it will be his son that does it. And that's because David's shed a lot of blood, and he's a very kind of military, kind of gung-ho, macho leader, and he's taken lots and lots of territory. He's a military campaigner, really. And that's not the sort of person that God feels is right for the temple, uh, to build the temple. And Nathan advises David of that. So Nathan is a person who hears from God and he hears accurately enough uh, to be able to go and give this rebuke. So we ourselves, if we feel that God is saying to us, we need to kind of say the honest thing to somebody. That's quite hard, isn't it? And doesn't it say, like in Corinthians, that when we have a word for somebody, it tends, it's going to tend to be to build up and to encourage and to edify and to exhort and so on. So talk to me a little bit about how you think about how you might become a prophet that says hard things. What do you think that might involve? And I, I haven't figured this out already, so let's just see where this goes. 
What do you think? What do you think you would do if one day you woke up one morning and you thought, oh, man, I just need to, I need to say to Theresa May that she's doing the wrong thing about HS2. I just need to say it. God's told me. But it was like, I'm semi-joking, but I'm semi-serious. Like, what would you do with that? Any ideas? How would you, where, what would you, where would you go with that? What do you think? I think there's a difference of, of being on a high horse, like you want to get up your points across, or feeling a desire to tell someone because you feel, you feel um, an almost like a, a supernatural compulsion to, to do that. If I, if I had a, a personal problem about Theresa May's leadership, and I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, to, to vent how I feel. That's not prophetic. That's just me wanting to use my platform to say what I need to say. However, if I feel I have a burden, mm -hmm. something that's not mine, it shouldn't, fit, it doesn't feel like yours, but it's something that you're wearing or, or carrying that you feel you need mm -hmm. to share with someone. Yeah. I would, mm -hmm. I would, I would more look at that as something um, uh, that I would share with someone. And I, but after you know, clearing it with God, that I, I, I would ask. Mm -hmm. If I wake up like after three days and I start at the same thing, sure. I think it's something I'd want to share. So it's nothing to do with me. It's something that I'm I'm wearing or carrying that I believe I need to. So you've share. said a couple of things there. You've said uh, it, it's kind of not a platform or a hobby horse or a yeah. kind of a thing that I'm going to vent. Yeah, That's important. That you're not just going to rant. And also, you've said you've also just um, I don't know whether you intended to say this, but you've also touched on something else, which I think is really important, which is that you'd probably. Review this a few times. Yeah. You you know you'd wake up each, yeah. and if it was still there, you yeah. would act on it. So, perhaps repetition of a message from God. Perhaps uh, that it's you're being careful that it's not a rant or a vent that you're just sounding off in this kind of, you know, and that's kind of hard to pitch sometimes. Any other thoughts about how you might take a prophetic word? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's, it's good to know your ministry. If you know that God has given you the ministry of prophesying. Yeah. People's life. Always gives you small bits and, and grows. And yeah, great. As a prophet, it's always proof. The proof is in the pudding of the prophet. It's mm -hmm. one of the hardest ministries that yeah. if, you, if you think you want to be a prophet, don't do it if you just want to do it as a, as, as, as a um, not, not a hobby, but as, as, as a gifting. You have to know it's yeah. through the Lord. Yeah. Unless if you get it wrong, you are not. So, great, great point. So, what I think you're saying is basically there needs to have been a lot of steps to this point. So it's pretty unlikely that you'd wake up one morning with a message for Theresa May. However, if you were someone that moved in leadership circles and you perhaps you worked for an organisation like Care and you were around, you know, Westminster a lot and you knew a lot of MPs and you actually had a, like a ministry in that and you served that environment and you were well known and that you prayed a whole lot and you'd had prophetic words in the past, that all leads to a slightly different approach to this. Do, yeah. my, my second point was going to mm -hmm. be sometimes God will position you in the position, like what you said in the house, in the parliament or wherever mm -hmm. it may be, where God can use you as a mm -hmm. Christian in your position mm -hmm. to, yeah. to minister so that his word or his achievements can be accomplished Great. sometimes yeah. God will set us up in that so, position yeah, so position, track record repetition, feeling that it's an appropriate, not a, not a rant anything else yet at the back? Is that always the case? I mean, Do you think so? What about Agabus, who prophesied that there'd be a severe famine? Yeah, well, well the, the point is, it, it doesn't really matter what the message is, but the effect is, when you prophesy to someone, the person knows what to do. It is clear. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no shadow of turning, and this person, I mean, it doesn't give confusion. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. So... This clarity, definitely. What education means is it builds the person up. And then just like you said, you're not just going to wake up Monday and God will have you have a message for Theresa May. You must have at some point in your life had a message for your friends mm -hmm. such that by that time, by the time you get to mm -hmm. that level, you are used to you know, God impressing such you know, messages on your mm -hmm. heart and then you're sure it's God. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's good. I think I think the track record thing's immensely important. 
Um, in the church I was at in, uh, at last in High Wycombe, uh, a man visited me one day and, and uh, he seemed a bit, a bit of a desperado, if I'm honest. And it turned out that he was known to the, the previous church leadership as a person who had attempted to try and convert uh, Lady Diana when she was like, you know, married to Prince Charles. And he'd kind of rushed at her in a crowd and said, you need to receive Jesus. And then like the security guys had kind of pulled him down. And, and it was it was too it was too ranty. It was it wasn't out of any platform of relationship. He wasn't he didn't move in those circles. You know, all those all of it was pitched wrong, I think. I think his heart was kind of maybe good, I'm not sure, but it was very misguided. Whereas I think there are people much better positioned, and I think that's what you say about position. Position, track record, very, very important. So Nathan hears from God and he's got sorry. I said I'm patient as well to make sure when God gives you a message, to carry that message, you should know that the, the message, the person going to hear it, they might not like the way you are delivering it. Ah, we're going to come on to that. But you yeah. have been giving this kind of desire with God, how to lead yourself, and then be prepared to receive whatever the answer that's going to be coming towards that as Sure. I think that first point that you said about the, the uh, making it work yes. for the hearer, yes. we'll get onto that in a minute. It's a very key point. Mm-hmm. There's a, there are ways in which you can make the hearer receive uh, particularly well. Uh, so let's let's move on. So Nathan hears from God, and God has this thing that He needs to convey to David. Um, and now we might not be as experienced or senior as Nathan, or have that track record or that position, but he did. And so for us, I would encourage us to start small and grow baby steps. Um, If you feel that you've got a prophetic gifting or any kind of gifting, like any sort of skill, when you watch a child developing it, they start small and they mess up a few times, don't they? You know, my son Simon, my middle son Simon, he's got a skateboard and he likes to go over the park sometimes. And when he first got on it, inevitably, there was a few times when he went, way, and the skateboard went whizzing off down the hill and he was flat on his back. But he carried on and kept going and he's got a reasonable level of skill now. And it's the same with spiritual gifts. Start small, grow a ministry and see if God's developing that in you. And I think at a point of maturity, that could be something that could be used very effectively. So the second point, so the first step to a godly rebuke, are you sure God's telling you to say this? And in Nathan's case, it was yes. The second point I'd say would be seek ways to lead the other person towards insight so find ways of um, helping that other person receive what you've got to say, which is really what you were saying. Um, so it's seek ways to lead the other person towards insight. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is Nathan does not go in with all guns blazing straight away. In fact, he, just, he does the opposite of what this chap who tried to kind of convert Lady Di had done. He, he basically tells a parable. He goes in and tells a story and it, he illustrates the issues in advance and he does it with considerable skill. Um, and he, he does it so well that really David has no inkling of what's coming. Uh, and so uh, it's a story that David hears, he gets angry about the injustice of it and it strikes a real chord with David. And then David gets to a point where he's really angry on behalf of this, uh, of this poor chap who's had this, this one little ewe lamb that's been taken off of him. And so it's kind of testament to Nathan's skill that David ends up being himself the person who speaks out the justice that's required in response to the situation. That's a pretty skillful thing to do, uh, that Nathan does that. So David cries out, well, the rich man needs to pay for that, number one, with his life. And number two, he needs to pay for it kind of four times over. So he's really, really mad about what he hears in this parable. Now, it's quite significant that David doesn't lose his life because he repents, but he does eventually goes on to lose four of his children. Have you noticed that? So in, in the thing that he exclaims, he says, well, that, that rich man needs to pay for this with his life, and he needs to pay four times over. Now, in the outworking of the story, David loses the unnamed son that he has with Bathsheba. He loses Amnon, he loses Absalom, and he loses Adonijah. And so he kind of does pay in a weird sort of a way. Now, we know that Jesus uses parables a lot in the New Testament, don't we? He just taught most of the time in parables and said lots and lots of great things in parables. And I think there is something really helpful 
when we remove ourselves one step from our own situation and then we view it almost like hypothetically through the lens of a story where there are different characters and, and it helps us to see truth so much better. Now, I think that's partly because the personalities have been removed from the situation. Uh, you know, or perhaps the emotional weight that we would feel if it was us, that's been lifted off of us and we get real clarity about the situation by looking in from the outside. Um, I actually think that's one of the reasons that God's given us the community of church. When we are in the thick of something, have you ever noticed that when we're in the thick of something, sometimes our friends can see with much greater clarity about it than we can? Or if you hear a story and you're thinking, why have you done that? You should do this. You know, now, you know, we have to resist that temptation to jump in with loads of advice. But actually, we can often see with real clarity why someone's perhaps got themselves into a, into a mess. Uh, because we're outside it. We're not the ones experiencing all the emotion of it. And we can be objective and helpful to that person. And I think a parable works a bit like that. A story works like that. It says, right, we're not going to look at how hard this is. We're going to look at this over here, which is in principle contains everything you need to understand, that allows you to grasp it. And then when you've grasped it, ah, okay, we'll now apply it to the real life and we get our, le we get our lesson, don't we? And Jesus was very, very good at that. Very good at that. Um, so we see the situation in principle through a parable and then we can see it in reality how it might apply to us in a kind of two-step thing. Something really interesting to point out to you that you may not know is that as Nathan is telling his story about the little ewe lamb uh, being like a daughter to the poor man, in Hebrew, the word daughter is the same as the beginning of Bathsheba's name. So he starts to hint, starts to sort of lay little verbal cues into, into David's mind. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly, um, but he, he's kind of suggesting, OK, he's starting to narrow the gap here as, as the story goes along. So what scholars are saying is it could be like a bit of a slight pun on Bathsheba's name uh, to start suggesting to David the relevance of the parable to himself. So just a suggestion for you to consider there. So Nathan delivers a story. Uh, so the man of God's heard from God and he's got a message to give, but he doesn't go straight in with that message. Boom. He tells a story to set things up. And that's why that second point is quite good. Are there ways in which we can make the message we bring something that the person can receive better. So we can tell a story, give an analogy, uh, give an illustration, and I think it's got to, got to come out of relationship a little bit. Uh, I really do. Okay, number three, uh, and there's no getting around this one. The third step to a godly rebuke is confront directly and objectively and explain the consequences. So it's confront directly and objectively and explain the consequences. So once David has kind of pronounced judgment on himself in the parable, Nathan then sees the permission and the opportunity presented to him to confront David. And um, I would say that our chances of confronting somebody about something that they've done wrong without done, having done that work of having them on side a little bit with us is hard. Um, I think it always pays to build a bit of relationship to a point where it can take a rebuke. Now, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes you just have to say, no, listen, this was wrong. With no relationship and no permission, you just have to do it because you feel like that just has to happen. But most of the time, if there's a chance for you to give a rebuke when a relationship's been like, created a little bit, that really helps it. For, for instance, I think it's less and less easy for Pastor Mark or myself as a pastor to speak with credibility to you guys if, if you see us putting very little into church or very little into the relationship, you know, if we're out five days a week playing golf and then just turn up for a little bit of, you know, a Sunday message, I think you'd think, well, OK, over time, <laughs> yeah, you can, tell, you can tell me these things, but I'm, I'm not really receiving it. You know, that's not going to work. And that's because you're seeing a gap between, you know, our, our, our integrity and, you know, what we're trying to tell you. Uh, so that relationship plays a key part in that. Now, God's word is still true, even if the relationship is poor. Yeah, that's the, that's the case. So what I'm saying is that it's receiving God's word, particularly if it's a difficult one, is greatly helped by a good relationship between the person giving the word and the person hearing it. So Nathan sees permission and opportunity in David's response, and he just tells him straight, you are the man. And Nathan spells out what he's done wrong. 
and all the things that we looked at last week, you know, all the, the ten problems or sins that David got himself into. And he explains the consequences as well. And sometimes when we kind of rebuke somebody, I don't think we are always as good at explaining the consequences as we might be. So, you know, we might say, well, one of the impacts of you borrowing my car for the weekend was I've now not got, not got any fuel. But a consequence for you is that, like, your insurance is going to go through the roof. You know, that might be actually spelling that out properly might be helpful. Um, the consequences that Nathan gives to David are two, twofold. First of all, the sword is never going to depart from your house. And that means that because you use the sword to dispatch Uriah, the sword is going to hang around you. Quick question for you. Where else does it say that in the Bible? Where else do we get a warning about that? Put your thinking caps on a minute. Who says that? Who warns against that particular thing? Sorry? Yeah, where does he say that, Goldie? I can't remember. But I just Anyone know where, it's, where that's said? If Put away your sword oh, if you live by the sword. Yeah, absolutely. Garden of Gethsemane. Very good. So what Jesus teaches is, if you are going to use a certain means to do something, watch out because that means might be something that comes back to you. And this is what we have here. Uh, uh, Nathan says, um, you've been kind of using the sword to do something you shouldn't have been doing, and now the sword is going to characterise your life, or it's going to be there. Um, the second consequence uh, means that... Um, sorry, the second consequence is that for what David did in secret will now be played out in public. Now, we might think that's harsh, but David is in a very, very public role, and one of his crimes was to abuse the trust that came with that public office, wasn't it? Uh, and now we have to remember, we're, not in old, uh, we're still in Old Testament times, we're not in the New Testament yet, and the justice system in the Old Testament was, well, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, wasn't it? And sometimes that, get, that gets characterised outside Christian circles as being vengeance. Well, not really, it's about the punishment fitting the crime. Um, and so that if you've lost something, then the restoration is that thing that you've lost, and there's a match between those two things. Um, so it's not about revenge. Now, uh, what happens is, as David hears those two consequences, and he, he repents, the issue of the sword gets lifted away from him. And, and Nathan says, well, you are now not going to die. And we can assume that he would have potentially died by the sword at some point in the future if he did not repented. But then the public humiliation of what happened with him and Bathsheba is that later on in uh, 2 Samuel... Uh, David's own son Absalom actually sleeps with some of David's concubines and he does this on a roof in full view of the people of Israel. And there's a mirror between uh, David's activity with Bathsheba viewed from a roof, trying to make that private, and then, David, and then God opening that out and saying, no, look. And then this, this is kind of like a mirror of what you've done, but it's played out publicly. And so what Nathan says comes true. Uh, and so David's repentance gets rid of some of the consequence, but not all of it. Are you with me? Yeah, you're still following that. Uh, 2 Samuel 16, 22 says this, so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And so what Nathan says comes true. After a fashion, Uriah does receive justice from heaven. Uh, if you think that through. Um, God has sent Nathan, he's confronted David. David is profoundly sorry for what he's done. Um, but there are some consequences for what's happened. Okay, so that's three steps to a godly rebuke. Um, it's hear from God accurately. Uh, let's just go through those again. So summarise them. Uh, seek ways to lead the other person into an insight or to understand what they've done. And then confront directly and objectively and potentially add the consequences into that as well. Okay, let's move on to the uh, repentance section. Um, I think this sentence uh, from Second uh, Samuel, um, where are we? Second Samuel twelve was it? Verse thirteen. Then David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." Yeah. Was there a question? Sorry. Yeah. No, I just wanted to make mm -hmm. a contribution. Sure. You mentioned John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. His own mistake. If Nathan owned, I know God didn't tell Nathan to go to David. Mm -hmm. And come in parable. 
for him is the wisdom. So even if God is leaving us to someone, someone also needs a wisdom to go about it. Yes. And don't just dig into it. If Nathan had gone straight and accused David, mm -hmm. he could deny it out of shame or pride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He may not intentionally want to be proud, but the pride will come in. Yeah. So that's the mistake of John the Baptist. Because he went straight. He didn't use the wisdom of God. Either God has even lead him or not. But it was the wrong action. That's, a, that's an interesting point. So what you're saying is that if John the Baptist had perhaps used a, a more tactful approach with yeah. Herod, yeah. that he might have been saved. Might have been saved. But Herod had a respect for... Um, Herod did actually mm -hmm. have, a, have a respect for um, John. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Not, not a respect, you know, he knew. Because Herod, when, when, it, when it came to the dance and the head and the, on the, on mm -hmm. the uh, um, platter, yeah. he was upset about that. Yes, which he was, would indicate yeah. that he actually, he, even though he didn't like what he heard, it was actually a respect that he had. For, do, you, do you understand what I mean? You don't have to like someone to respect them. He, respect, respect, he respected his. What happened is that if John didn't end up in prison, that would have not happened to him. Because he ended up in prison for coming wrongly to Herod. That's Herod, not what Herod definitely have respect on him, but at that point, the way he came across Herod wasn't, you know, palatable to him. That leads him to prison. If John the Baptist was not in prison, Herod's, um, the, the lady, I, I actually, I think you have a point. I'm not sure. Um, we don't know whether John the Baptist didn't tell a story. We're not, you know, or to preached a parable or got his way in in a good a way as Nathan did. What I think is different, the most significant difference between John the Baptist and Nathan is the recipient. It's the person receiving the rebuke. Now, David stands out because he's somebody who is willing to take a godly rebuke. Herod stands out as someone totally unwilling to do that. He just didn't want to hear it. Um, and, and in a sense, the fact that he, put jo he puts John in prison, you know, David doesn't do that with Nathan, and he could have done, but he doesn't. So I get the feeling that John the Baptist might have, he might have walked into that potentially unwisely. He was an, ex he was an extremist, I mean, you have to be fair. You know, he was out in the desert and eating locusts and all that stuff. I mean, he didn't really pander to people. I think the first thing he says to the Pharisees is, you brood of vipers. You know, so he's straight in there, isn't he? So you, you probably have a point, okay? However, we don't know whether he didn't soften the journey a bit, but the it's the recipient's attitudes that makes the biggest difference here. Uh, yeah? I'm absolutely right with what you just said there, because the Bible said that John Baptist was the greatest of all prophets that ever was. So even greater mm -hmm. than Nathan. I know that yeah. John the Baptist came raw, because that's how he was. He had a camel hair and a yeah. belt. Mm -hmm. And so that's how God provided him to um, bring forth the word. He didn't come to please men. He spoke the word exactly as it was. So he, yeah. he didn't come to make people <laughs> feel good. He said, this is what God said, accept it or not. But when yeah. with Nathan, because he was approaching the king, he wanted, if he, if he had just gone to the king and said, oh, you had slept with Bathsheba and you killed Nathan, as you said, he could have probably denied it and said, well, who told you that? But because he led David into his, to the correct answer, into yeah. his own mm -hmm. sentence, that was, that was just um, exactly. divine intervention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being wise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's I think we should be as wise as uh, Is there a sentence? So this, this, this verse, when David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, that I think more than anything else in the Bible is what God puts on David as this is a man after my own heart. Because it's okay when everything is going really well to be great with God. It's when things have gone really, really badly and you're still willing to go, no, you're in charge, God, and I, I put you first. When all the chips are down and you've totally stuffed up, it's when you do that and you say, no, actually, I acknowledge that I've done the wrong thing. That's what marks him out and stops him from becoming a tyrant or, a, you know, or, or one of the people that we see in society today that's, like, tyrannical or whatever. Yeah, Gaudi. Um, I think that's a good point. Um, I think that's a good point.
and that sort of embodies like salvation because you know like salvation we say like I have sinned against you and like yeah. ask mm-hmm. forgiveness and ask Jesus to come into our lives so yes. that also like sort of paints a picture of salvation sort yeah. of thing. so that point at which David says I've sinned against you is also the recognition of I need your forgiveness God I need yes. to get right with you and, and leads to salvation and in fact it's very interesting that David uses that word in Psalm 51 which will come on towards to towards the end um uh, don't take something like don't take the joy of your salvation from me which is quite a, a, a new testament concept you know it's where does salvation appear in the old testament really well yeah okay you can run to god and he gives you help but we haven't really had that fully defined until the person of jesus but david mentions it and so you start to get this idea of salvation from this episode yeah that's right yeah mm-hmm. um, also uh, i mean blazingly obvious but it was actually solomon the 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 child um, from Bathsheba, who was actually the, the son who inherited the, the kingdom um, from him, and actually was the greatest king mm-hmm. um, uh, in all that area. Yeah. And that, in a way, shows God's character, again, bearing in mind what you've said, mm-hmm. namely, um, you know, his, God's respect of David was that his heart... Um, was there, and, and the proof of the pudding, in some way, was that Solomon came through as the as the next king. Yeah, there was a great blessing for the next generation, and God didn't withhold that blessing, even though David had done the wrong thing, and that hinged on David's willingness to say, I'm sorry, I know that I've done the wrong thing, uh, totally. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's fine to say that. Um, so really, the lesson for us tonight would be that the acknowledgement of personal sin before God in response to a godly rebuke really lies at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's absolutely core. You can be a fan of Jesus, which means you admire him, you think he's a good teacher, you think he's a great guy. But when Jesus comes along and says, well, you've done the wrong thing, you're a follower of Jesus when you say, yeah, I think I have and I'm sorry. That's the difference. Okay. Now, it is a really horrible feeling when, when we realise that someone has brought us evidence of a sin and that they are right. I mean, that's a horrible feeling. No one likes that. But the reality is, remember last week, for those of you here last week, do you remember one of the aspects of getting into sin is it reduces your objectivity. You start becoming kind of like spiritually a bit naive. You don't see things clearly anymore. Um, the process that Nathan takes David through is, a, in a strange kind of a way, it's a form of deep kindness to David. Because De- Nathan is, is kind of charged with bringing God's correction to him and putting him back on track. So without that correction or that or godly authority being present, what would happen would be that David would end up being answerable to no one else but himself. And that's where we get the ingredients for a dictatorship or you know, ruled by a total authoritarian, selfish tyrant that doesn't see anything beyond themselves. Um, I've been reading a great book by uh, that mathematician, uh, John Lennox, about Daniel. And one of the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has is kind of related to his own status and how big he'd become in his own eyes. And that then he gets brought down by God and has to be subdued to God before God because God is sovereign. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar that's sovereign. Um, and so that process outworks itself in, and Daniel kind of plays that role a little bit. You know, he kind of plays the Nathan role towards, towards that king. So hardness of heart leads to greater and greater, um, uh, greater and greater sort of um, you know, lack of awareness, I guess, of how and what we do uh, is impacting other people. And actually, taken to its most extreme form, it can be very, very damaging to societies and to groups of people. So an obvious example to pick might be something like the Holocaust in World War II, um, which could be summed up as an absolute hardness of heart towards God uh, by that regime, and also really a strong failure by the church, you know, an abject failure by the church to gain proper audience and change minds. Now, there are some notable exceptions. I'm not slamming the church completely. People like Bonhoeffer did a super job, or, you know, an incredibly heroic job of speaking up against that regime and trying to say, well, you're doing the wrong thing. And so some church leaders definitely did what did a Nathan, but it just wasn't received very well, and they paid for it. So really, if there's a, if there's a message I want you to take away from tonight, um, 
and really perhaps the whole series of the King David uh, summer series that we're doing, is always do your best to receive input from God that puts you back on track with him. Just always do that, because without that process, it's so easy to get off the rails. Don't reject feedback from people. Don't reject feedback from your pastors. Um, Try and keep a soft heart to God's input. One of the things I want you to also notice is that as David realises he's done the wrong thing, um, notice how he addresses God. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's not, I've sinned against Uriah or Bathsheba or my court servants or Joab or those other soldiers who died or that boy that's now going to die or who's now dead. But the first person that he addresses is, is you, God, I've sinned against you. And that's very interesting because I think all sin is couched in the context of does it, it's got a God dimension to it. And so David's right to say sorry to God first. And of course he has sinned against those people, but he says sorry to God first. Okay. I would sum up that, that first point by saying that God, David is one of those really rare leaders that can take a godly rebuke fully on board and it, allow, and it allows him to change. So secondly, number two, uh, in the three steps to repentance, face the consequences squarely. Face the consequences squarely. So the first one, sorry, the first one was... Um, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, acknowledge that you've sinned. Really sorry, I didn't give you that, did I? So the first one was acknowledge that you've sinned. So if you get a godly rebuke from somebody, really the first step is, yeah, yeah okay, I'll, yeah, I have done the wrong thing. So acknowledge that you've sinned. Sorry, that's the first one. Um, the second one is face the consequences squarely. So David's sin gets taken away by God, but there is fallout. The son born to David and Bathsheba doesn't survive. Last week, we totted up 10 transgressions that kind of mounted up in David's tally of wrongdoing. And I guess you could say that the loss of this little lad's life is number 11. Um, There's some pretty difficult ethics around the loss of this life. How do we couch that? You know, that seems like an innocent life that got born and then taken away. Hmm, that's hard. I guess that always has to be taken in the context of that that was something God permitted for his own son, that his own son was taken away, and that there's some kind of restoration for that lad in heaven. I don't know. Um, What I do know is that I won't ever be able to out-argue God on on the goodness of his ethics. I just have to go, okay, I don't understand that, but that doesn't mean that you're worse. It just means I don't understand. Do you see where I'm going with that? Okay. I'm really interested also that David pleads with God for the child. He doesn't just give up on this. He prays and he's wanting it back. He wants the situation restored. He, he fasts. But sometimes God just doesn't answer prayer, maybe because it's not his will to do so, but maybe because we've behaved our way into something that you, we can't now pray our way out of. Have you ever done that? Tried to pray your way out of something that you've behaved your way into. Yeah, I think maybe a few of us have. So like sometimes when we're praying, just do that little sanity. Is this something I've actually put myself into, God? And then like Pray if there's a, you know, that's sorry? A, that's a really good question. <laughs> are, you, are you trying to pray your way out of something you've behaved your way into? And let me give you a little illustration of just a very, well, I think it's kind of an entertaining illustration of just what I mean. So picture the scene. Um, George is five at this point, and he's walking home from school. George is giving me that look of, don't even don't share this story. But anyway, he's walking home from school with his friend Isaac, and he is about 50 yards ahead of us on this pavement through this housing estate. And then Chloe and I are coming kind of in the middle, and we've got Adam, who's in the pushchair still. And we're talking, and Adam's sitting there, and he's happy and everything. And then a few, maybe 25 yards behind us is Simon, our middle son. He's kind of just dawdling along. Like the typical walk home from school. And then we notice that George and Isaac, who are ahead of us, have paused and they seem to be very intently doing something. And as we draw level, we find that they're praying earnestly for the little tiny blue baby bird that's lying dead on the pavement, that's fallen out from a tree above the pavement. They're praying for it to be resurrected. And they're only five. And I'm thinking, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal something about you, George. I'm sorry to do this to you, but George actually prayed to become a Christian when he was four. Aww. So bless, and I'm sorry, I'll move on. Okay, so 
So yeah, so he and his friend Isaac are praying for this little baby bird that's just like on the pavement. You know those, you know those ones, you see them, it's just tragic, and you know it's never going to go anywhere. Anyway, so they're praying for this baby bird to be resurrected. Okay? So we then pray a bit, and I'm like, oh, George, that's brilliant, and you know, well done for praying, and well done, Isaac, you pray. this is his school friend, well done for praying. And so we then, as a whole group, we then start walking on, having left the bird and, you know, whatever. So we then realise that Simon isn't with us after a few more yards of walking up the hill uh, in this housing estate. And I turn round, whereupon I see Simon peering at the bird, and then suddenly he goes, oh! But he does a face, he kind of goes, like that. It's the funniest thing. And Chloe turns to me and says, that's kind of undone that prayer, hasn't it? And she's right. Why, the reason I wanted to share that story with you is because sometimes we try and pray our way out of something that we have really behaved our way into. And you can't really do that. And sometimes when there's a stony silence from heaven, it's God saying, well, you put yourself there, you doofus. Don't do that again. <laughs> okay. Sometimes our behaviour is so poor that no amount of prayer will change what our behaviour caused. Now that's a difficult thing for some Christians to live with because they think that forgiveness means there's no consequences. If I pray enough, it will all go away. Well, in some cases, God's grace is big enough for that to happen, yes. But in other cases, and in many cases, sometimes it doesn't happen like that. Um, you know, we hope forgiveness will just deal with everything, and, and it, it kind of sets us right with God, but sometimes there are consequences. There's, sometimes there are, there's fallout that has real impact for a very long time. So David being sorry does not bring Uriah back to life. David praying for Uriah to be resurrected is just a joke. It's not going to happen. Um, who here remembers that Paralympic athlete, Oscar Pistorius? Do you remember that whole debacle that went on in the news? Now, him being sorry about what happened to his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, is not going to change the fact that she's, she's now dead. Just not. Whether that was an accident or not, and I don't know what your opinion about that was. Very unfortunate and unpleasant story. So there's forgiveness, and there's also fallout. And I think we have to in our facing of the consequences, embrace the fact that God may have restored us in relationship with him and we've got forgiveness, but there might be some things for us to go and fix and for us to go and change if we can. So don't be blaming God forever for the bad choices we have made. Don't be trying to pray out of our way out of the things we've behaved our way into, but you can be asking God how you might make some changes to affect those consequences for the better in the future. And you might be able to do a lot more than you thought. God might be able to use your mistake to prompt you to have a change of heart about something. And a great example of that would be um, Saul in the New Testament. He, super, he supervised the stoning of Stephen, didn't he? And then there was the Damascus Road encounter, and then he had a massive change of heart. And he went on to become as zealous for Jesus as he was against him. Uh, so sometimes those early mistakes or things that we get drastically wrong, God can flip them on, his, on its head and, or, or them on their head and we can change around. So that's the second thing. Face the consequences squarely and that there might be some things that we have to do and go and fix. Um, yeah. And also with the Paul situation, there was something that Paul prayed for mm -hmm. that God did not answer. Ah, we, we don't yeah. know what it is. The thorn in the flesh thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then it could be the sort of the same situation with David, whereby because before Paul also had a bad history. <coughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. and then maybe that could be one of his consequences. That it might have been, yeah, that God that didn't remove that thorn in the flesh, yeah. and that maybe that thorn in the flesh. Some, I mean, some some scholars think it might have been a physical disability, like bad eyesight, but it could equally have been. Um, a continued panged conscience about his start in life mm. and how he just so totally got it wrong and that people had died as a result of him being overzealous in the wrong way. Absolutely. Could be, it could have been that, yeah. So the third thing uh, about repentance, three steps to repentance, the third thing is don't stay there forever. Don't stay there indefinitely. David moves on and so does God in this story. Now, when I first read this story, I was a little bit shocked at how quickly it moves on. David only spends seven days being miserable about what he'd done wrong. You know, um, 
that, that's quite a short amount of time for the, for the scale of the issue, I think. Uh, I think I might have spent a lot longer on, on that and constantly turning it over in my head. I don't know. Um, the other thing that seems to be slightly odd to me is that God seems to bless David and Bathsheba with another son called Solomon, uh, as you pointed out. And he confirms his blessing uh, with this name Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. So God's moved on quite quickly, and so does David. Um, and it seems at this point in the story, when this happens, it feels a bit like least said, soonest mended. We've looked at this grisly tale. We've looked at all the consequences. You've been rebuked by the main prophet of the land. You've said sorry. Now it's time to move on. I think that although the crimes were really big, and perhaps they warranted some more time processing them, they, they don't get that time. And I think David goes through lots and lots of things, but I think he knows he can't pine forever over a situation he can't change. Um, so the, I guess the counsel to you and I this evening would be don't always be looking back, pining for what might have been, had you not done that wrong thing. Because the reality is you have done the wrong thing, there are some consequences, but now let's put those to bed and let's try and move on as best we can. Um, David notices that his attendants are whispering among themselves. He says, is the child dead? The child is dead. But then he gets up. He changes his clothes. It's almost like he kind of changes his mind and just snaps into action. It's very interesting. The first thing that he does, apart from obviously washing and sorting himself out personally, is he goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. And actually, that seems to me to be a pretty good model when all's been kind of all the dust has settled and it's time to move on, go and worship God again. Don't let something really poor stop you from worshiping God that, that's happened. If you've, you know, if you've been through this whole scenario, worship God. Uh, and then he goes and has food and so on. So David fasts, he prays, he's appropriately uh, sad and remorse filled. Uh, he accepts the outcome, he receives the rebuke and takes it on the chin. He switches gears, he lays it down, and gets back on with his life. Now I'm going to close by suggesting that uh, as David worshipped, he may have had some of the thoughts that are recorded in the very, very awesome Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is like the, almost like the kind of um, the poetry form of David's reflections out of this whole episode and how God's restored him. Um, and we know that because it says that the, not all the psalms have such a direct attachment to an event, but it says this, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And I think the Lord has allowed that to be in there, that heading, so that we know that this psalm has got some things in it that can help us when we've really messed up. So we can read Psalm 51 in those times when we've made those massive mistakes and we can draw comfort from how David processed his issues with God. So I'm just going to read it out to you. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my saviour and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, uh, then bulls will be offered on your altar.
How did David know about the Holy Spirit and mercy in him? Can I just make a contribution? Mm -hmm. You remember that when um, Saul, was it Saul? Mm -hmm. Was anointed, he prophesied. So, so that definitely, so his Holy Spirit has been in existence. What did you call the Holy Spirit then? Conviction, isn't it? Spiritual conviction. When he said Holy Spirit, he said, do not take your Holy, your Holy Spirit, Spirit from me. Because when the Spirit of God left Saul, what happened? Mm -hmm. The evil spirit possessed him. Mm -hmm. So he's aware of that. Mm -hmm. But the Holy Spirit was this this passage this this passage is unbelievably New Testament in its feeling, don't you think? If you look through this, you've got um, you've got mercy, uh, compassion, sure, all those things, but you've also got um, that that very specifically, don't take your Holy Spirit from me for sure. Grant restore to me the joy of your salvation. The point that Gaudi made earlier, um, sinners will turn back to you. Um, you who are God, my Savior. There's this real deep recognition that it's God who saves. This, this psalm is not, very, uh, not a very far jump from New Testament theology at all. I think you might be right, because I think it's the spirit of God in previous points. You know, it's like with Samson, it's the spirit of God. At creation, it's the spirit hovered over the surface. You know. I think you might be right. Mm -hmm. Some, the, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs inspired mm -hmm. by God so yeah. for Him to say these words. Yeah, it, it's the mm -hmm. same kind of revelation that, that I, I believe He had that um, that Peter would have yeah. because of His mm -hmm. worship and His desire to worship God. Yeah, He 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 will utter things that that the innermost secrets of, of God through song, mm -hmm. through worship. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that that connection. You know that you know the Spirit is it on or in? You know we mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit in. You know, when the Holy Spirit came, when the Spirit of God came upon, it's mm -hmm. almost like, um, like it's, it, it, you understand, like, like, like yeah. it's Samson's an external thing mm -hmm. that God will put on you and you have power. And, and then, but with us, you know, it's within us. Yeah. But, but in the Old, the Old Testament, it, mm -hmm. I don't know, I, I, you know, there's like, um, I don't know. It's more of a, you know, when the Holy Spirit was upon, mm -hmm. upon, I think, from a theological point of view, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit turns up for specific occasions yeah. and people and situations, yeah. but he's not available to all believers all the time. Yeah. Whereas after Pentecost, yeah, the Spirit is available to everybody who would receive him, and his empowerment is available for everyone, uh, for all. Yeah. And, and you know, back to his question, David was also very prophetic and the Psalms are very prophetic. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as much as this was a prayer to God, it could have also been like very prophetic. Sure. Oh, oh no, definitely, absolutely. Sure. No, I think you. No, I think so, you're totally right. Yeah. I think if you're if you're a prayerful person and you hear a lot from God and you're uh, you're trying to express yourself in re in your relationship to God, I don't think it would be any accident for God to uh, give you things that are from Him, which aren't just for you but they're also for something bigger than you. Yeah. And you see this a lot in the Old Testament, much, much more than you, than you might realise. Well, you probably do realise, but you see all these different things in the Old Testament which the Spirit of God has inspired and either points to Jesus or is prophetic in a subtle way or overtly prophetic and, and, and says it outright. Um, I mean, Psalm 22 has all sorts of very direct prophetic things about none of his bones will be broken and they cast lots to divide his clothes and all, you know, all these kinds of things that I, I guess if David wrote that wouldn't have known the full significance of those things but they, the spirit was speaking through him and had a bigger meaning for later on. Um, yeah, definitely. It's an awesome, awesome psalm this. So, so good to go to this particularly if you've messed up and, and get some help and some strength from God. I think one of, one of the best bits in it is where it says renew a steadfast spirit within me steadfast means being stable and when you've sinned you feel wobbly don't you for a while you think oh no you know I've, I've done it again I've messed up what a rubbish Christian I am and the devil gets straight in there and tries to push you off your bike and you're like oh. 
And what God's basically, what David's basically saying is, renew that steadfastness I have with you in my relationship with you. It's so good. It's so helpful to ask for steadfastness back with God. Great, great psalm. So, a few minutes tonight, just a couple of ways in which we can respond to this. So, um, is there someone that we need to go to and show them their sin? Quite a hard thing to do. Matthew 18 says, you know, go and confront a person and say, hey, listen, you, you sinned. Now, we need to make, be sure that they sinned. We need to, you know, pro- process that through a little bit. Maybe, though, there is somebody who's wronged us and we need to say, hey, that wasn't right. Um, is there equally, is there a sin that we need to acknowledge that we've done? Or are there some consequences that we've been putting off facing? Um, even more than that, maybe there's a sin we've been dwelling on for absolutely years and tonight is the night when you just drop it and you go, if David can move on in seven days, I need to, I've been thinking about this for seven years, never mind seven days, I need to drop it. I need to forgive myself because I know God would and God has. So maybe that's something for you to think about. And the last bit from tonight would be, I would really encourage you to perhaps learn one or two verses from Psalm 51 for yourself. Such a great psalm. I'd say it's probably my favourite psalm. 